invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, which comes this morning from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the hand of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, or in the earth below, or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them, and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a jealous God that you pursue us with abandon and seek to possess our whole hearts by being so faithful to us and sending your only son to die in our place for our sins. Open our ears to the truth of your word as Pastor Ryan illuminates it for us and help us understand that your statutes are for your glory and are good. May your spirit empower us to walk in your ways so a thousand generations after us can come to know you love you, and keep your commands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to open it to the book of Judges, chapter 17. And Judges, chapter 17, is where we are starting out. And while you're turning there, I want you to think with me of a picture and a mirror and how the two differ. A picture, we would say, captures a moment in time. My wife often sends me pictures of our kids playing during the day while I'm at work that I absolutely love. I try to save all of them. Many of you have favorite pictures of kids or grandkids spread throughout the house, of loved ones, of different memories that you want to see often. In my office is a picture of my wife and I on our wedding day. The irony is, is that I asked for three things for our wedding. No photographer, a baby blue tux, and for us to smash wedding cake in each other's faces. <laughs> Suffice to say, I got none of my requests. But I do love that picture, so I'm thankful for the photographer. So much joy can be seen in pictures. But the opposite is true as well. So can sadness. A picture can show the face of a loved one that passed away. It can make you think of a time before being widowed, or a time before you lost that child. The picture, though, captures a moment in time, life as it was that day. Now think of the mirror. The mirror simply reflects back reality. It shows you, you, as you really are, warts and all. It shows us with our hair falling out, as the students like to remind me, or turning gray, wrinkles being mass-produced over the years. You can't hide from the mirror. It presents things exactly as they are. We've been in the book of Judges for a few months now, and we come to our final two messages this week and next week. As we've been saying, this book is hard, it's raw, it's shocking, and it's sin-filled in so many ways. And so this week's message and next week's message really serve to round out the last section of this book, chapters 17 through 21. In the previous section, it's the largest section, is what the uh, book is named after, we see the rise of individual judges that would deliver God's people. 
So to name a few, we can think of Barak and Deborah. Think back to Gideon and Jephthah and even Samson to round them out like we saw last week. But in these last few chapters, things get even darker somehow, particularly next week. And there is no more judge. There is no more deliverer that is raised up. Sin will wreak havoc, and the people will do what is right in their own eyes. And so these last chapters are not a picture, but a mirror. Israel is not confronted with what others are or were like. They are directly confronted with what they are like. The writer of Judges is pulling no punches. Look, he demands, look in the mirror at what you are like in your sin when there is no king over you. Look at what you are like when you forsake your covenant God. Look at yourself in the mirror. So allow me to read our story. I'm going to read all of chapter 17 and most of chapter 18. Please follow along with me. Judges chapter 17. There was a man from the hill country of Ephraim named Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver taken from you, and that I heard you place a curse on, here's the silver. I took it. We're starting out well. Then his mother said, My son, may you be blessed by the Lord. He returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I personally consecrate the silver to the Lord for my son's benefit to make a carved image and a silver idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took five pounds of silver and gave it to a silversmith. He made it into a carved image and a silver idol, and it was in Micah's house. This man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household idols and installed one of his sons to be his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. There was a young man, a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who was staying within the clan of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. On his way, he came to Micah's home in the hill country of Ephraim. Where do you come from, Micah asked him. He answered him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year, along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me, because a Levite has become my priest. Chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the Danite tribe was looking for territory to occupy. Up at that time, no territory had been captured by them among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent out five brave men from all of their clans, from Zorah and Eshtol, to scout out the land and explore it. They told them, go and explore the land. They came to the hill country of Ephraim, as far as the home of Micah, and spent the night there. While they were near Micah's home, they recognized the accent of the young Levite. So they went over to him and asked, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is keeping you here? He told them, this is what Micah has done for me. He has hired me and I became his priest. Then they said to him, please inquire of God for us to determine if we will have a successful journey. The priest told them, go in peace. The Lord is watching over the journey that you are going on. We're going to skip down to verse 18. In between, the five men go back to the tribe of Dan and they report all that they've seen and they tell them, let's go. Let's conquer Laish. It's a weak and unsuspecting city. It is a peaceful city. They can't stand up against us. So eventually, 600 Danites agree to go with their wives and their children. And on the way that they're going to conquer it, they say, oh, by the way, there's this Levite over here. Maybe we should make a quick pit, quick pit stop. And so they do. Verse 18, here's the pit stop. When they entered Micah's house, 
and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol. The priest said to them, what are you doing? They told him, be quiet, keep your mouth shut, come with us and be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest for the house of one person or for you to be a priest for a tribe and family in Israel? So the priest was pleased and he took his ephod, household idols, and carved image and went with the people. They prepared to leave, putting their dependents, livestock, and possessions in front of them. After they were some distance from Micah's house, the men who were in the houses near it were mustered up and caught up with the Danites. They called to the Danites, who turned to face them and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you mustered the men? He said, You took the gods I had made and the priests, and you went away. What do I have left? How can you say to me, What's the matter with you? The Danites said to him, Don't raise your voice against us, or angry men will attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. The Danites went on their way, and Micah turned to go back home because he saw that they were stronger than he was. Verse 27, after they had taken the gods Micah had made and the priests that belonged to him, they went to Laish, to a quiet and unsuspecting people. They killed them with their swords and burned the city. There was no one to rescue them because it was far from Sidon, and they had no alliance with anyone. It was in a valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. They rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after the name of their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel. The city was formerly named Laish. Throughout the study of Judges, we've talked about how this book isn't so much of a repeating cycle, but actually a downward spiral. And in these last two weeks of Judges, even though at times it's felt like this previously, it will feel like we have hit rock rock bottom, particularly next week. But as I said before, the writer of Judges is holding up a mirror to Israel and allowing them to see what life is like when they embrace it without their covenant God. So we have some things to learn from this. Lest we think that the mirror is only held up to Israel here, we must see that the mirror is being held up to us as well. Scripture confronts all of us in our sin. So throughout this morning, I want us to fight the urge to look down on the people in this story and instead allow God through his Holy Spirit to show us where we, in fact, are like the people in this story. So our main point this morning is very simple and very straightforward. We need a righteous king. We need a righteous king. Israel needed one, and I want to explain in a bit what that means, and we need one. That's the truth that confronts us from what is happening. Because when there is not a righteous king to lead the people, false religion arises. We create our own gods, and we create ways in which we hope to get God to do our bidding. So with the backdrop of needing a righteous king, I want us to see how false religion arises in the king's absence. And when I say false religion, I'm meaning everything from something that is clearly another religion to something as simple as thinking false thoughts about God. Everything in between. Religion here means worship of the one true God, what we would call Christianity today. But false religion in the absence of a king was prevalent then, and it's prevalent now. So five characteristics of false religion from our section, and the first is this, rejection of God's word. If you're taking notes, there's an outline in the bulletin provided for you. The first characteristic is rejection of God's word. Undergirding the entirety of the apostasy prevalent throughout the book of Judges is what happens when a people reject their covenant God, specifically the God who has revealed himself in both word and deed, Yet here, it is the rejection of his word that we see. Let me just list from the first five verses what's happening. 
You have the eighth commandment being broken as a son steals from his mother. You have the fifth commandment being broken as a son fails to honor his mother. You have the first and second commandments being broken as an idol is fashioned from the silver. You have Deuteronomy 27 being broken as it says, whoever sets up an idol is cursed. And yet here the idol is seen in a weird way as some sort of blessing. And the mother even blesses her son after stealing from him or from her. And then Micah undermines God's designation of the Levites as priests and makes his own son his priest. So in the first five verses, there is a complete rejection of the word of God. And the writer of Judges wants us to see that. He wants us to see all of that before the huge statement that comes in verse 6. They rejected God and his word, we see. They took what they like and they put away the rest. They changed what they wanted. They fashioned their own gods in their own minds and then fashioned idols that would represent those gods that they wanted to worship. And then in verse 6, we read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now this writer is purposeful and he's putting it right there for a reason. Throughout the book of Judges, we have had parts of this statement, either the first half or the second half, but here at the beginning of chapter 17 and then at the very end of chapter 21 is the only two times in the book that the entire statement is said. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So if you're a student of scripture, you might ask yourself or be thinking, why is the king so important? And why have I modeled my main point about we need a righteous king? Weren't there bad kings in Israel? Yes, definitely, wicked ones. But the king had a role in leading and guiding the people. He had a role alongside the Levitical priests in pointing people to the word of God. In light of Deuteronomy 17, where we see the stipulations and the responsibilities for a king given, he was to read, it says, from the copy of the law all the days of his life so that his reign would be blessed by God. Daniel and God's providence read from Psalm chapter 1 in our call to worship, and it's the same for what the king was to do. He was to meditate on God's word day and night. So when the writer keeps saying that there was no king in Israel throughout the book of Judges, it's serving, it isn't saying that they need to just have a king for the sake of having a king. That's not the point. Rather, he's saying that they need to have a king who is after God's own heart who leads the people as God would, have them, God would have them lead, who teaches them righteous living and shows them the way of godliness, who doesn't allow them to keep living in their sin. So that's the image that the writer of Judges is reflecting on, one who would be like the coming Davidic king, one who would lead the people of God with truth and righteousness and justice. So that refrain is heavy. Because like the mirror being held up, the people look in that mirror and they see themselves in it. They see that they have rejected God's word. Some of them don't even know God's word. They're violating God's command. It's just the air that they breathe. And the writer is saying, look at what that gives you. Look at what you've sown and you're now reaping. Now friends, apart from the grace of God, we are just like Israel here. In our sin, and in our sinful flesh even, we all reject God's word. We reject what we know to be true. We naturally don't want to do the things that God commands. This is why Jesus is so adamant to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that he must be born again. He must be supernaturally born again. We need, as Ezekiel says, this heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh to replace it. We need to be saved. And it's only God who can do that. 
And what these last chapters of Judges show us is that in part, in part, apart from being saved from the wrath of God, we need to be saved from ourselves, our sinful selves. Left to ourself, we love sin more and more. A rejection of God's word, though, is what we see in any form of, of false religion, which brings us to our second characteristic of false religion, and it's pragmatism. Characteristic number two, pragmatism. What is pragmatism? Pragmatism, if I could define it simply, is the thought that if it works, it's right. Or if it works, then it's good. The ends justify the means. The results confirm the methods. It's in many ways results-based. In our story, we see pragmatism on full display. It's undergirding all of their behavior. Micah is a well-off man. If you read between the lines, you can tell this. It's clear from this sort of compound that he has where he's employing people, and it's clear from the amount of silver he was so easily able to steal from his mom. So he hears that his mother has cursed the thief. So all right then, I'll go ahead and return it. Mommy even blesses him. Surely his stealing wasn't that bad. Then he wants access to God or various gods. Yahweh was just one of the various gods, I'm sure. All right, I'll go ahead and make idols and I'll have an idol room and a shrine. And lo and behold, after I do that, look who comes to my door, a Levite. God is surely blessing me. And the Levite goes and he's wandering and he's searching for a place to reside. And lo and behold, here's a well-off man willing to pay me 10 shekels, that's the four ounces of silver, and a suit of clothes and provide me with my food. Sure, he has some household idols, but hey, I'm taken care of. And the Danites are the same since the Amorites were still in their land and they couldn't drive them out like God had commanded or even better turn to God and watch how he would drive them out. Then lo and behold, we must go and attack this peaceful town and take it for ourselves. We conquered them. It works. God must be blessing us. Pragmatism has no thought for God nor his word. It simply says, well, I feel good and this works. I feel blessed. So God is clearly blessing me. Success is measured by the eyes. Results are what matter. But the pragmatists would do well to remember the examples that are in Scripture that are held up for us. Of Isaiah, who was called by God to preach to a people that God told him won't listen to you. The results were bad. They didn't listen. Or Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who prophesied to Judah that they would be defeated by the Babylonians and taken into exile. He was not popular with Judah. The crowds did not like him. Or even our Lord Jesus, who always taught that what appears to the eye, external holiness, we like to see that, is not what matters, but rather the heart. Jesus' message was so popular with the crowds that they chanted that they would rather have Barabbas than him. No, pragmatism, results-driven means, isn't championed in the Bible. But faithfulness is, whether it brings the crowd or not. And do you see what has happened, if I could apply this today, what has happened to the church at large today? How pragmatism has infected it. From worship that is strictly driven by emotions and to how it feels, and we didn't sing our favorite song that day, so we weren't able to enter into worship, to sermons that are little more than self-help TED Talks, pragmatism has infected the American church. The driving question, if I could put it as bluntly as this, for so many churches, is how can we get more butts in the seats? How can worship feel more real? How can we entertain the kids and kind of put them in another room? What's the one program we're missing that will just take our church to the next level? 
And so they gear everything around those goals and those outcomes. Everything is geared towards that end. The pursuit is for those things rather than how is God glorified? What is happening when his saints assemble and come together? How can mothers and fathers disciple their kids like they're called by God to do? How should God be worshipped? What does it mean to follow him alongside others? What is the church? How is it shaped? How is it led? How can my life be used for the glory of God? Pragmatism ultimately supplants God with what makes us happy and feels good and is easy. And notice even Micah's statement in verse 13, the arrogance. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me because a Levite has become my priest. So let's ignore the idols, ignore the shrine room that he has, ignore the buying of a priest for your own gain, ignore you somehow trying to ordain him rather than his ordination coming from God. Now I know that the Lord will be good to me. So the common thinking today is that if it works, then it's blessed by God. But at the sake of divorcing worship of God from the revelation of God and his word, pragmatism misses the mark entirely. Micah and the Levite and the Danites were all coming to God in a pragmatic way. From fashioning an idol that might help them to hiring a priest to get God on their side, they are interpreting events in their own way as a blessing from God rather than through the lens of God's word and what he has commanded. It works, so I must be blessed. These people have set agendas for themselves which are achieved, and then they see it as a blessing from God, not realizing it's actually just showing their sinfulness all the more. It's true then, I want to say this clearly, it's true then and it's true now that God does not stifle every corrupt thought and scheme of the human heart. He doesn't stop it. So we have to interpret these things through his word by the Spirit, and in the wisdom of the community he's placed us in. So how do we see this in our own lives? Pragmatism creeps in when things are going well, when we're comfortable. We turn a blind eye to the little areas of sin. We aren't in the midst of discipline or suffering. Things are going well, so it's easier to just think, everything's fine. God approves of how I'm living right now. Let me ask you this question. Is God the means or the end for you? Is he the means or the end for you? Is he the means of you getting things, feeling that comfort you need, worshiping him for what he provides? That's the means, or is he the end goal of your life? For the Levite, the end was some food in his belly, a nice little stipend, and some clothes. What are you tempted to use God for in your own life? Or is God the end goal? Is he the end goal? Knowing God, fellowshipping with him, bringing glory to him in all things. First question, the Westminster Catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is the goal of every single life sitting in here today? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. May the glory of God be the end of all of our lives. Pragmatism, though, says the opposite. It doesn't matter how God reveals himself. Go based off what you feel and what looks like is working and judge it off that. May we heed the warning of pragmatism here. Characteristic number three of a false religion, syncretism. We're going to continue with the $5 words this morning. Syncretism. While pragmatism says that the results justify the means, syncretism, simply put, is just the blending of religious thoughts and practices. No king to teach righteousness, therefore the covenant people of God start to mix their faith in Yahweh with other faiths. Syncretism and allowing other religious thoughts and practices in the faith is a slap in the face 
to God. It says that what God has revealed about himself and what he has commanded are either not enough or are wrong. He is not sufficient. He is not all-powerful. We must have other things in our lives that guide us as well. We get bored with God, so we want to add in other things to worship. Now, sure, we don't do this explicitly or purposefully. I doubt many of you have little idols in your house that you're bowing down to. But syncretism is slippery. It slides in when we least expect it. We try to manipulate God in various ways, or we try to think specific actions are what are going to save us, or if we just pray a little bit more, then it'll get done. From the lie that all roads lead to heaven to the lie that doing more good works and bad things will save you, from the lie that walking down the aisle during the altar call is the guarantee of our salvation, all of these things seek to add to what Christianity is. Syncretism in the church today, though, is tricky. It comes in at times under the veil of sincere Christianity. They'll blend in a little bit of emotionalism or a little bit of pietism. They blend in something other than faith in the finished work of Christ. Rather than, having, uh, rather than Micah having faith in the promises of God and seeking to follow God faithfully, he had faith in his idols and the fact that he had a priest. False religion today is just the same. Faith in the finished work of Christ is not enough. It's not simply to the cross I cling. It's simply to the cross and something else. It's Jesus plus something is the answer. You see, God created us, brothers and sisters, as worshipful people. You will worship something in this life. It's a guaranteed fact. Augustine famously wrote that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Your heart will go, if it does not know Christ, it will go from one thing to the next seeking to find satisfaction wherever it can. So being created as worshipful people, when our hearts are not resting in Christ, our appetites take his place. We seek to be ruled by our wants or our desires and allow other thoughts and practices into the faith. We become syncretistic, hoping to find guidance or help or deliverance in something other than God, just as Micah did with his idols. We create our own gods, and then we place our faith in them. Notice that even that little statement that Micah makes when he's chasing after the Levite and the Danites after they robbed him. He said, why did you take the gods I made? Well, at least he knows the truth about his so-called gods. What gods of worship can be made? Syncretism blinds us to the foolishness of sin. False religion, a false Christianity today, seeks to add to what God has said is sufficient. It's the lie of Satan in the garden still echoing out today, all this time later. Surely God didn't say. Surely sexual ethics today have to be understood differently. We are more enlightened. Surely he did not mean that you truly cannot do anything to save yourself. Surely Christ did not mean that it is truly finished when he said it is finished. Surely you can't be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Surely, surely, surely. Fill in the blank. Beware the slipperiness of syncretism, the lie of Satan, that something else must be added to what God has said is sufficient. Fourth, faithless priest. Fourth characteristic of a false religion, faithless priest. Now, I'm using priests here because we have a story of a Levite who was supposed to be a priest, but in applying it today, you could easily add pastor, elder, ministry leader, something 
else, someone who is ultimately, possibly, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Notice once more some of these interactions with the Levite. Verse 9 of chapter 17. Where do you come from? Micah asked him. He answered him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I can find a place. Micah replied, Stay with me and be my father and priest, and I will give you four ounces of silver a year, along with your clothing and provisions. So the Levite went in and agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, because a Levite has become my priest. Supposing to be a servant of God, a Levite as he's known, this man was a servant of himself. The Levites were given the responsibility to spiritually lead the nation. They were to point God's people to righteousness as well, but he forsakes his responsibility. One would hope in a nation gone astray, chasing and whoring after idols and whatever form of worship they can, all of those things, that one would hope in that nation that at least the priests would remain faithful. But alas, why this story is at the end, We have the priests facilitating the worship of an idol, multiple idols. This would be like me getting up here this morning today and telling you that praising Allah or praying to some Hindu god or starting to listen to the teachings of Joseph Smith are good and helpful for you. Let me, as one of your pastors, help you in that endeavor. Maybe now we can begin to imagine the horror of a priest forsaking the covenant God to facilitate worship of a lifeless idol. God forbid that I or any other pastor or elder here start to encourage you in your pursuit of false gods and false prophets. But rather than call Micah to repentance, here this priest serves himself. So he leaves, he's out wandering, just wandering for a place to settle, and he winds up at Micah's house. And when he gets there, he should have confronted everything wrong that Micah was doing. He should tell him the commands of God that he is breaking. He should show him what repentance looks like. He should be about the business of God. Yet he's about the business of himself, the business of his stomach and his bank account. He's a sellout to the ministry. Really what we see here is an Old Testament version of the prosperity gospel. Micah pays for his priest. He pays for his access to God. And both sides here are at fault. Micah thought that he could buy God and the priest thought that he could sell him. So practically, let me just apply this. This is an issue in churches today, and I'm going to say from both sides, from the church and from the pastors. I have friends in ministry who have been told, you know who pays your salary. The idea is to get in line. We don't like what you're saying or doing, and they're being faithful to the scriptures. Or other acquaintances where it's been said, well, pastor, if you do that, then people are going to leave, and it's going to affect the church budget, the implication of And what you get paid, as if a pastor's faithfulness to God and his word should ever be swayed by money. In those moments, the church is behaving like Micah, trying to buy God. Praise God that that does not happen here. But let me speak to the other side as well. My denominational background is one in which many try to climb the ladder of success in the church. You've got to be willing to move a lot. You go from one church to another, slightly changing positions each time until you work your way to the biggest church and the highest position and therefore the biggest paycheck. May this sellout of a Levite be a warning to all in ministry and all who aspire to ministry. 
Financial prosperity and comfort is never the goal of ministry. God calls one to ministry and a church affirms it and praise God for churches like CCC who seek to honor, uh, honor those who labor over the word. That's a sign of health. But this priest in our story sought out comfort, sought out the good paycheck apart from God. There's a difference in seeking to provide well for your family and seeking to live high on the hog. And clearly he is confused. How do I know this? Well, look with me at chapter 18 when the Danites come to town. Chapter 18, verse 18. When they entered Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the silver idol, right? So the priest is residing over all of this. This is his territory. The priest said to them, what are you doing? They told him, be quiet. Shut up, basically. Come with us and be a father and a priest to us. Is it better for you to be a priest for the house of one person or for you to be a priest for a tribe and family in Israel? So the priest was pleased and took the ephod and household idols and carved image and went with the people. The priest was pleased. He had a bigger and better opportunity to go to. From priest to just a family to priest to a whole tribe. God's blessings just never end. Presented with a greater opportunity, he was pleased to forsake the man who even in his sin had cared for him and took him in as a son. Too often, churches and pastors can pride themselves on the size of the church, looking down at smaller, faithful churches who are doing the Lord's work. Is it better to be a pastor of the smaller church or the megachurch? That's what the Danites were getting at with the Levite. And that's the sad state of affairs that our churches are judged off today. Pragmatism enters in. They're big. Clearly, they're doing something right. Christ community, if I could just pastorally say, God has given us growth, and we praise him for that, and that should keep us humble in all things. We praise him for that, but at the same time, he can take it away. But God forbid we lose sight of what marks us as a faithful and healthy church. Fidelity to the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. A love of God and a love of neighbor, a desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. May we continue collectively to love and serve alongside our brothers and sisters from other gospel preaching congregations, never judging by the size, but judging by the content of their message and the fruit of their witness. But apart from ministry applications, the vast majority of you work outside these walls. So how do we apply this faithlessness here? The pragmatism that enters in. Let me ask, how are you handling that inner desire that all of us struggle with at times, that inner requirement for greater recognition, for that promotion, for moving on to bigger and better things? A desire for a promotion isn't bad in and of itself, but question your heart. Question your motivations. Allow others to question with you. And seek to confess the moments of sinful covetousness and seek to guard against the allure of the next position and the bigger paycheck. Maybe God is showing you grace and allowing you to be passed over for that promotion. Maybe he's protecting you. Or maybe that promotion, that pay bump is for you. Or maybe the sacrifices of time away from your family and your church family are not worth it at all. Learn from this unfaithful priest who is willing to sacrifice everything for comfort in a better position. Last characteristic, from the one to the many. Fifth characteristic of a false religion, from the one to the many. In the absence of a righteous king, false religion arises. As I said, that was true then and it's true now. 
And in these characteristics of a false religion, we see how it spreads out as well, often from smaller numbers to greater, or here in our story, from the one to the many. So the Levite is captured by the Danites, and then notice this at the end of chapter 18, where I left off, verse 30, the very end of the chapter. The Danites set up the carved image for themselves. Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the Danite tribe until the time of the exile from the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image that he had made, and it was there as long as the house of God was in Shiloh. Here is what the writer of Judges has been holding out on us. Who is this Levite? Who's this sellout to the ministry? Who is this man? Well, Israel, as this mirror is held up to you, do you remember Moses? Do you remember the man that God used to lead you out of bondage and slavery in Egypt? Do you remember the man that was called a friend of God, whose God's presence passed before that he was allowed to see? Do you remember that man? Your patriarch, the one that you looked to? Here's his grandson leading the people astray. Here's this Levite. Here's this sellout. Look at what you have allowed, Israel. Look in the mirror. What would Moses say to you? What would God say to you? This shock was meant to direct them back to their God, the covenant-keeping God who seeks to call them continuously back to himself, but to whom Israel wants no committed relationship with. But our last point this morning is from the one to the many. So look with me what happens when this Levite goes off with the tribe of Dan. First it started with Micah, then the Levite comes, and now the Levite's taking it to more. The idolatry, the spiritual prostitution spreads to the many. Depending on which exile is mentioned here, this idolatry started again by the captured Levite, infected the tribe of Dan for hundreds of years, day after day, year after year of idol worship taking place by one of the tribes of Israel, generation coming and going, children learning this from their parents, learning where the shrines are in their particular city and going to them. Hundreds of years from the one to the many. False religion does not like to stay small. Satan knows what he's doing. Like a cancer, it wants to spread and to infect and to lead people astray. This is why Paul is so adamant in Ephesians chapter 6 about the importance of our spiritual armor. Because we are engaged in spiritual warfare day after day. Apart from the grace of God, brothers and sisters, we would constantly be led astray. And so that temptation is there, both in the church and outside the church, to add or take away something from the gospel, something from God's word. And unless we are on guard, it so easily creeps in, spreading from the one to the many. And so in closing, in this passage, we, like Israel, are confronted with a mirror, confronted with how we in our sin want to rule ourselves. We naturally do not like any king above us. We want to be the king. For the unbeliever here this morning, apart from the reign of Jesus Christ in your life as the righteous king, you are the same as Israel here. Living in sin, you're most likely syncretistic in your beliefs and you're pragmatic about whatever works in your life. Whatever God you throw your prayer up to that might listen to you is fine with you. And if it's not a God, because you don't believe in him, then it's ultimately just yourself and other humans. Atheists are still worshipers, just of humans. They're humanists. So apart from God, you are living like Israel here, just doing whatever is right in your own eyes. My friend, the loving thing to tell you this morning is that that is wrong. 
That's infinitely wrong. That's not how God intended you to live. And so his love and his wrath, both of them, are revealed to us in his holy word. His love in that he sent his son Jesus to die for all of those who would trust in him. That he took our punishment and our place willingly so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. That call for you to trust in him is held out to you this morning. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But his wrath here is evident as well. Like Romans 1, we see in Judges just God giving people over to their sin. No more judges coming here. No more deliverer. And, but he's not going to let this sin go unpunished. He will not abide the worship of another. And eternal hell is eternally real. You need a righteous king. And that king is Jesus Christ. So may God, through his spirit, open your eyes to see and your heart to believe this morning. To my brothers and sisters in Christ... You have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You have trusted in him. You're not perfect, but you're pursuing after him. You love him. You desire to live a life following him. Notice the signs of both personal and corporate embracing of a false religion. Recognize how just a small rejection of God's word in one area leads so easily to pragmatism and syncretism in a whole host of other areas. By God's spirit, recognize as well where you are prone to succumbing to these false thoughts in your own life. The author of Judges is telling the people, you need a righteous king, and praise God, brothers and sisters, we know that king. So this story in God's providence, as I've said many times, is holding up the mirror. It's holding it up to the reader. This is a story here in chapters 17 and 18 of an unfaithful priest and a people who had no king. It's highlighting the promise that began in Genesis and that we trace throughout the scriptures that Israel needs a faithful priest and a righteous king. They need the priest king to lead them. Praise God, Jesus Christ is him, our Messiah. So while the mirror is held up for us to see how we truly are in our sin, it does not stay there. It's thrown away. It's taken away as we look to the cross, as we look to Jesus Christ, and we see our forgiveness, our Savior, our priest, and our righteous king. By faith, we know him and we love him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we as your people can gather here this morning as your church to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you that the Bible includes the hard book of Judges as well. Thank you for the story that is meant to instruct us. For all of scripture is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, Father, would you, by your spirit, apply it to our hearts and our minds? Help us to recognize where um, false religion can so easily take hold of our own faith. Help us to recognize where we're tempted by the throes of rejecting your word, of pragmatism, of syncretism. Father, help us to be on guard against these things and to continue to look to the God who saves us through his Son. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.